She doesn't remember the specifics of it, but she wakes in her parents' room, a room she's never woken in, and it smells. In her throat is a rage so potent that it tastes like the after effects of vomit. Mom is the first thing she says. How sad for her. Mom comes echoing through the house, past the blood-stained furniture, the thrashed coffee table, outside even, through one of the windows where Ohms is, passed out in the shed. Alive, he thinks. It was a dream, he thinks. But he's in the shed, with the lawnmower and the crusty blanket he threw over himself, the one that he uses to clean up spills. So it wasn't a dream. He cracks the door, and in the house, she cracks the door. God bless it, they're moving towards each other, though she's not looking for him. In fact, she's looking for mom. This time she says it quiet, because she sees the stains, like a body got dragged and tossed and thrown and so on. That's when she gets scared, that smell, and why her parents' bedroom. What the hell, she says. And she starts to look for her phone. She slams her fist into the wall and leaves a mark. What the hell? Half to herself, she's never hit anything, much less over the insignificance of not having her phone right now, right here in her hand, calling. Dad? It sounds almost foreign to him, walking in the downstairs door. She started calling him father just to mock his lack of parenting and the times he tries to stick his nose in and, quote, adjust her. A little bit of him breaks inside hearing that. She's still his daughter, even if she hates him. Lara, he says, and makes a run for the stairs. Is it even worth saying they hold each other at the top of the stairs, father and daughter? Maybe the first time in two years she's had her head in his chest, still totally unsure, but totally sure that something is totally wrong. And him, wondering how he's going to break the news, kissing her head in a way that makes him feel right, but also unsure, like she'll break away. And yeah, she does. The Nudge. This is the first episode of The Nudge. Today we talk about writing for an audience as it relates to Eric's piece, the one you've just heard. Tim wants to know how we choose the pieces we pick to publish. What is an integral work? We talk over the strange yet successful shape of Matt's collection, The Grief, and close discussing originality as it exists within the unescapable act of repetition. This is the second issue in something that I've been working on with a buddy of mine, Dan. It's a werewolf comic. We did a lot of world building for this thing, and now we've been writing issues. We're trying to write an eight-issue thing. Uh, The basic premise of the entire thing is that on a fixed day, a large group of women transform into werewolves and upset the social balances, um, doing quite a bit of damage. And then it begins to happen periodically. What happens to society as this change in power dynamic happens, specifically related to the physical form, and looking at from a... A world viewpoint more than just an individual character. We do follow a character called Ohms, who's a um, alcoholic through the first part as he deals with what in issue one was his wife's uh, death. 
writing for an artist and sort of writing for another person makes it so that the perspective is not necessarily in a storied view that might be run across in like a short story or something like that. So some of the um, direction and so forth has been a really interesting process for me. This is good. This is a different kind of style. It's not, it's not completely new of Eric material that I read before, but it really is tighter. I can hear you, you know, constraining your inner thought and, and uh, making the dialogue tighter. How do you feel about that as a writer? Is it something like, hmm, I like this or mm, this is. Yeah. Um, yes and no. I think that there's something in me that loves freewheeling. Um, when I launch onto a page through a tiny period and then open up into a bloom of something totally weird, that's part of what I love about the imaginative power of my mind that I've found, right? Is like, I get to do this. This is something I can do. Why not use this power in some way? And pulling that back so that it's more understandable has mostly been an act of, again, this sort of, who's this for? Like right now, I'm very fortunate that I have a guy who I say, when I sit down, I say for Dan Lombardi, right? This is my other writer. I'm writing it for him. I want him to like it. I want him to be able to understand it. I want him to know what's going on in the story. And I know what his trouble points are. I know what he doesn't like. I know what would confuse him, um, which is very different than writing for an imagined audience. An imagined audience is infinite in what they do and don't understand. They are willing to go with you in certain places and not in others. And Dan and I have had a lot of opportunities over the recent past to really hash out like what we love, what we struggle with, all that sort of stuff. So the tightness I think really comes from audience tightness more than anything else is saying like, you know, make sure Dan gets it. If Dan gets it, I got the story across. Any creativity or fun that goes on in the middle of that has to kind of live within some of what Matt described earlier as these tight constraints. No matter what, I'll pop up in there. It's like, it's, I was written by me. Um, it's never not, not gonna feel like that. Uh, it goes back to that maturity we talked about last week mm -hmm. being one of the things to develop as a writer with maturity comes hopefully confidence with confidence comes that ability to to rein it in and feel like uh, not feel threatened by that yeah there's a there's always that struggle as you as we're growing it as our writers because you hear Hey, you got to find your voice. You got to be yourself. You got to, you got to just, you got to get it out there. Uh, trust what you want to say. Nobody else has said it before. Mm -hmm. And then the other very real part of you are writing for somebody to read this. Mm. And it's not, it is not your journal, your diary. Mm. Um, very few people are very good at writing a diary that we want to read except mm -hmm. for the secret secrets. Right. So mm. it's that, that marriage of craft and art and whatever it is that that individual artist is bringing. And I think that maturity is a good word, uh, Matt. It doesn't mean that you can't be doing it when you're 16 and 19 and 20. We're not talking about age. It's just talking about being aware of, uh, of the fact that you're doing something that has a craft requirement as well. And uh, what I would say, Eric, is that what I'm seeing, what I read, I was, I was surprised because I'm used to that flower blooming. Uh, but I liked it. I liked that you could actually keep into that box in a way that it's not stilted or less. Mm -hmm. You are still flourishing. Um, it is getting the message across the things that you, the subtle messages that you want to get across. Mm -hmm. um, works really well. I thought, is there a difference between editor 
Eric, publisher Eric, and writer Eric, and, and just what you were talking about. So producing your own stuff to share sure. versus getting somebody somebody else's stuff and saying, okay, th yeah, this is what I want to work with or not. Um, yeah, the act I have to go through as an editor and a publisher is um, one of convincing myself, which is if somebody hands me something and they say, I want this edited, no matter how much I see in it at first as something that's either not done or half-baked, three-quarters baked, I have to assume that the reason they've given it to me is because they need to share it. And if I don't go into the work with the belief that they need this to be done, then I will assume that it's a pet project, that it's something that they just want to toy with, all this sort of stuff. And so for me, it's an investment, and it's one that I willingly make each time to say, okay, like this is the most important thing you're writing right now. I'm going to treat it like that. Let's figure out what the soul of this is. Because I think every piece of writing has a soul. I think every piece of writing has something in it that that would be important to somebody. Don't let me don't let me shortchange those pieces that are in the shoebox as not being like relevant or made of you. Um, but I do think that um, uh, when somebody puts blood into something and blood is time, blood is money, whatever. Um, then, then they, then they feel it integral to themselves to make this thing done. I think integral is a, I think that's a good jumping off point for, for how I think of it. it it's right. The, the things you want read, the, the things you want to gonna take out of the shoebox and put out in the world. It's the things that you want the reader to, to know about it kind of, it's almost overly simplistic, but like you won't get to know me as a writer and as a person unless you read this. Uh, you know, I think like part of what I want as a writer is to be understood. And maybe that's not like a necessarily helpful or healthy approach, but that's really what I want. I think me mechanically, and in the like kind of how to toolkit category of this discussion, uh, specifically about the grief. So there's three stories in the grief and they like, I'd say just about every story that I've put out there started very specifically. I think, you know, Eric, you were talking about this. It's not just this general, like here are some like thoughts on some big themes that I'm kind of corralling into a story. It's a very specific to someone or a specific prompt. Uh, Again, to the uh, hypothetical writer or student listening, the first two stories in that collection started from very specific prompts, looking uh, to the various kind of submissions wanted. And there was a journal that wanted uh, uh, stories about ghost trains. So I wrote this story uh, that, that started very specific to a ghost train and then went, ended up going very far afield. <laughs> but that it was that specific constraint that I think uh, allowed it to, to be something rather than, than nothing. Uh, Eric um, and, and Matt, when did you know it was going to be these three stories? Was there, were there more possible story? Was there some filtering going on or was there, how did you know you were going to put this together in this, should we call it a novel, this collection, The Grief? Um, how did you know these three go? Um, 
maybe not because it's for the person that hasn't read the grief it's 64 pages long it's not you know it's not a 250 page book or something like that um the stories are are not connected in the sense that you're following the same character all through each three of these stories but uh how did you know this was the this is what's going to be in there these these need to be in this this group together uh so the last story is specifically about my friend chad who died in 2017 of uh cancer is only 40 so that story uh specifically was about processing his death and when I finished that story, I, I knew like like this is probably the best story I've ever written. Like when that story was done, there was no doubt. Like I want this out there. So you know, do I submit it to any number of journals or publications? But it was such a personal story to me. I I I didn't just want to send it out and have it just go on the the desks of various like unsolicited slush <laughs> slush piles and, and never be heard from or even if it got published it would just be like a story among stories like and i guess every story is like really personal but this was like just this to me just felt like very personal i have kind of very specific ways i wanted to to handle it and to to uh, get it in people's hands you know I'd, I'd been processing grief a lot and thinking about grief a lot and the, the myriad aspects of grief not just the the death of friends and loved ones but just the you know the grief that comes with being alive and and i realized that those other two stories were also in their own way about grief uh, a kind of grief or kinds of grief uh, it's nice and of in like the world of self-publishing now technology as it is like a 64 page small batch print run is is viable you can kind of custom your your publications a little more than i think you could before it gives you a little more flexibility so 64 pages three stories Fifty copies. It, it worked. Yeah, I have to say, it's it's a, it's a book size um, that I I'm not used to getting because mm-hmm. usually the books that I'm getting are, you know, chunks. I chunks. Even with short story collections, they're chunks. Mm-hmm. There's something intimidating about a, a chunk. There's something like how am I going to sit on this for a couple of days? Am I going to try to read all the way through it? That type of thing. And uh, it was nice. It was nice to have this little. Uh, there was there was a sense of I can I can comprehend I could take this in mm-hmm. at my own pace and time. There's no rush to get through story one, two, or three. You know, I can just sit and read it like almost like poetry. A friend of mine, we were going back and forth this week, and one of the things we talked about was coming to the limits of language. And what do we do when we come to the limits of language? And I think this kind of looping back around, you know, we've, we've 
Hmm. What more can we say? Mm -hmm. I don't know what more we can say, but we can come back around and say it in a, a different way. In a, or, or even if it's the same thing, we can keep saying the same thing. Hmm. It's not that we, you know, we don't need new words. <laughs> There's not words that people haven't heard. Yeah. We've said everything that can be said about this. But, you know, we can come back and say the same things with equal energy repeatedly, or we can say them again with new energy or, or a different kind of energy. And so we find the layers of discourse and communication even after we've hit the limits of just the, the words and their immediate meaning. Yeah, you're, you're making me think of, I mean, my head's going in a lot of different directions with this because of what we've been talking about from the beginning and now kind of dropping in our perspective as writers, as readers, uh, as people too. And, and you know, one of the things that I, I, I think Matt is right, we, there's a limit to language and, and it reminds me of that uh, Chuang Tzu thing about, uh, you know, once you've got you, the rabbit trap exists to catch the rabbit, once you've got the rabbit, you can let, get rid of the trap. And that's, he was kind of referring to words, but then he goes to this point about, uh, uh, show me a person who's forgotten words so I can have a com conversation with them. Hmm. And, and I think one of those things that you guys were talking about there, both with Eric's chanting and, and uh, the, the, the rhetorical crowd chants and so forth and Matt's re repetition, but not the same repetition is that, I don't think um, direct communication or direct lines can work all the time to get to the nuances of life and the things that we're trying to say. Sometimes we have to be indirect. And sometimes that means ironically repeating things again with slight differences or changes. And when Matt was saying that, I was thinking, you know, when I, my, my guilty pleasure readings are usually detective novels of the, the you know, the Chandler era and so forth, but it's a formula. It's a formula. He's going to have, you know, the same basic experience. And I want that same basic experience because that voice is going to uh, hmm. make it new and original. But you know he's going to solve the crime. You know when you go into a, a movie that's about a crime, either the crime's going to get solved or there's going to be some, you know, but the, the elements are still going to be there. Hmm. And I, I wonder if... Um, What's that line about there's nothing new since Aristotle or something like that? I wonder, yeah, I wonder if just uh, hmm. part of a writer's, I don't want to say frustration, growth, growth or understanding is that you're not going to put something out there that has to be completely original. It, mm -hmm. it can't be completely original, except it will be original because it's your voice. It's, it's your saying it. Yeah, I've been growing comfortable with the idea of not being a part of a crest of a wave, but instead being part of the ocean. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, It really has been something that it what it demands is that you assess the things that you're saying and also look to where they've been done in the past and say, okay, I'll say it again and I'll pass it mm -hmm. along and I'll say it when it's most important. Thank you for joining us. This was The Nudge, three points to consider. Links can be found to free PDFs of Eric's Chapter 2 and Matt's Ultimate Extreme Total Life Challenge, a eulogy, in the description where possible. Otherwise, we have shared our work at clawfootpress.com, where you can also purchase Matt's book for any price you can afford. If you enjoyed our episode, keep an eye out for the next gem, 
Or, if you would like more, we release long-form conversation weekly between these polished episodes.